Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and get those out. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in the 12th chapter today. Had a slight change in plan this week. I had penciled in uh, talking about a different uh, pericope here in, in chapter 12, but I, <clears throat> I've had several uh, mentors and uh, teachers who have uh, encouraged that when you preach or prepare to preach, you should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other so that uh, we can set life alongside the Bible and see where intersections are. And if you pay any attention to the news, there's a lot of disturbing stuff that is going on in the world, and I thought that it would probably be wise to change the focus slightly uh, this morning and, and read a different, uh, a different section of chapter 12. Um, I'm kind of bothered by the news these days. Um, when is enough going to be enough? And as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that throughout the Gospel of Mark, that's been our focus primarily for this year, and I did a quick review of the other Gospels. <clears throat> From start to finish, in the Gospels, there is a growing discontent in Jesus that's evident in the way that he interacts with the world around him, with his disciples, uh, but in particular with the leaders of the day. And I spent a lot of time thinking about <clears throat> what is at the heart of Jesus' discontent with the way things were in his world. And I think there's a, there's a pericope, that means a little paragraph, in chapter 12 that answers that question for us. So if, if you would, I know you just settled in, if you would stand with me to honor the authority of the Word of God, I want to read Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. 
to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Have you noticed that um, America's like a little bit angry these days? I know we just came out of the uh, campaign season. Election time always highlights that in our temperaments. Um, but if you, if you just look around, um, America is angry. Uh, and what do you do about that? Thomas Edison once said that discontent is the first necessity of progress. In other words, <clears throat> if you're not upset about something, if you're not bothered by something, then you're likely not to make any effort to change that. So if you're okay with the status quo, you don't have any motivation to uh, make anything different. Um, but when we let a little bit of discontent in, when we notice something that begins to bother us, then that's something that can drive change in our lives personally, our families, our church, our, our community, but in, in our world as, as well. We live in a day and age where with the technology that we have, we consume more information these days than at any time previous to us. And so, if we spend any amount of time listening to what's going on in our world, because we can consume so much stuff, it can seem like it's overwhelming. Uh, and, and when we begin to feel overwhelmed, it's just, it, it seems like maybe the problem is too hard. We hear about the anger. We read about the violence. We hear negativity. Um, we watch people lie about one another all over the place. And if we wallow in that, it can be overwhelming. I'm, uh, I'm an optimist through and through. Uh, that, that's who I am. I'm an eternal optimist. But if you ask me in a really honest moment right now, there are times where I I feel like I just have a really cynical view on what's going on in the world. And for an optimist to spend any, any amount of time with cynical thoughts in their mind, it's extremely draining. But with all the information coming in, it's, it's not hard to get to that place. I think that there comes a time when we've got to say, Enough is enough. Enough already. As the people of God, I think that we need to step into our calling to be agents of God's reconciliation and transformation in the world. See, when we, when we get frustrated with what we see 
hate crimes and shootings and intentional slander and political corruption and just people tearing and clawing at one another to, to take each other out, um, we see a lot of ugly out in the world. You know what the biblical word for ugly is, right? Sin. And it's our sin. We own part of it. And when, when we're frustrated and disheartened or saddened or angry, uh, when we look out and we see how sin is just devastating the world around us, there's, when sin threatens to overwhelm us, there's, there's several ways that we can respond. One way that we can respond to that is to, to, to do this. Oh well. We can take on an apathetic view. We can become complacent. We can bury our head in the sand. Whatever cliche you want to throw at it, we can do that and basically we take a couple steps back and, you know what, it's really somebody else's problem. I don't have to worry about that too much. If I just go about my own business, then uh, oh well. Oh well. We see sin devastating the world and we shrug our shoulders. Hmm. Oh well. That's one way we could deal with it. A, A second way that we could deal with that is we could respond in kind. We could stoop to the level at which we see other people out in the world responding to each other. They're just taking swings at each other. And so we can, we could rise up. We can, you know, get that fight uh, instinct going in us. And if you want to take a swing at me, well, you better be ready because I am going to swing back. You want to bring it? You better bring your A game. We can respond in kind. I don't think that's a Jesus way of responding, but it is a way that people often respond. Either, "Eh, oh well, I guess there's nothing I can do, or there's the fight back angrily. And when you shrug your shoulders and say, well, I guess it really doesn't matter, you're saying it's, you don't care, and you really don't want it to change. You're, you're okay. You're complacent with the status quo. It's fine. I don't, I don't need the world to change. It might require something of me. Or, the second way, we can get angry about it and we can tear other people down. We can rip into God's creation. I think there's a third way that we can respond. There's another way. It's a biblical way. Uh, we could respond with anger that is righteous. All anger in the Bible is not sinful anger. There is a, a level, if you, if you read Scripture, there's righteous anger and what you might call a holy discontent with the way things are. When you match them up to how you read what God intends it to be, and what humans have made of it, you can get upset about that. And so there's this, um, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. It says, um, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. What it says is, you can get angry, but when you're angry, do not sin. Now that's, that may be one of the most difficult imperatives in all of the Bible for us. In your anger, do not sin. 
There is an anger that is not sin. You can look at the brokenness in our world and you can let it break your heart. You don't have to be content with the way things are when, when you see that there is another way, a better way, a godly way, what God actually intended. I read this story recently about a farmer uh, over in Africa who his piece of property was along the Congo River, just outside, just right on the edge of, of a village. And one day he was tending to his fields and he looked out and he heard, he heard a cry for help, help me, help me. And there was a guy out in the middle of the river just flailing his arms and he was, he was drowning. And the farmer, he just ditched what he was doing. He ran, he jumped in and uh, he, he pulled the guy all the way to shore. And, and by this time, the, the people from the village had you know, heard all of the commotion and saw the splashing and kind of came over to the shore to, to see what was going on. And, and no sooner had they pulled, this guy, the farmer pulled the one man to shore, but they heard another cry for help out in the river. And there was another, and they rescued that person. And then another, and another, and another. And after rescuing all of the people, you know, the, the villagers were kind of exhausted from all of that work, and, and there was a boy in the crowd, and he, he piped up kind of in an exasperated, almost upset kind of a tone, and he's like, I don't know about you, but we should probably go upriver to see who's pushing these people in. He, he looked at the situation and he figured that there was probably something going on upriver that was causing all of this. It doesn't have to be like this. Let's go work on the source. Now, righteous anger is... Well, I, think, I think when we feel angry, we think it's righteous. It makes us feel righteous, doesn't it? When we just burn inside because somebody done us wrong, man, that feels good. And so we, I think, get to the point in our mind that we believe that our anger can be labeled as righteous anger. Getting angry is easy. Getting righteously angry is terribly difficult. It's not easy. Uh, righteous anger reacts to sin against God, first and foremost. Uh, righteous anger sees God's desires and ways and sees God's kingdom getting trampled and gets upset about it. It reacts to this sin against God. Anger is anger's not righteous when we get upset that our personal preferences get stepped on or overlooked. Anger is not righteous when we are inconvenienced or when we feel that our rights and our privileges are somehow um, trampled. Righteous anger rises up when we see people working directly against what God intended. That's when it's okay to get upset. When we see other people oppressing God's creation, including people. When God's prerogatives are what's getting stepped on, that's when we can become righteously angry. And this third way, this biblical way of dealing with 
our emotion when we look out at the world and we see sin just wreaking havoc, this third way can lead to change in our world, in our lives. Uh, by calling, it, it can lead to change by calling people out of the behavior that they're displaying. It can, it, it can affect change by calling people to repentance. This kind of reaction, righteous anger, a holy discontent, discontent works at um, ends that are both good and godly. So this, a way that you can respond is an active response. It requires something of you. It disrupts your life, probably, but it can affect a lot of change for good. I mean, think about just a few characters in in the Bible. Moses was up on the mountain and God was giving him the Ten Commandments and he was away for a while, like 40 days. And the people back in camp were getting a little restless. They think Moses was gone way too long. Oh, Aaron, he's deserted us. You know, we should, you know, you got to make us a god. And so somehow uh, they collect all of the gold in the camp and they throw it into the oven, and, and Aaron says, it just came out. The calf just came out of the fire. And Moses comes down the mountain to see the people praising and dancing and singing around this golden calf, and he gets righteously angry, and he throws the tablets down, and they shatter. He's confronting the idolatry in the people. Prophet Isaiah, he laments over the people's failure to respond repeatedly to the love of God. Amos, he's another Old Testament prophet. Um, well, Amos, he lived, um, was back in uh, 760 B.C. or so, and he was a shepherd, and he had compassion on the poor people that he saw being oppressed. The, the cancer in that society was injustice for the people who weren't in the privileged class. And, and Amos was, was upset about it. God called him to go bring this to the attention of the people. Now, Amos, there were two kingdoms at the time, and so there was a, there was a period of prosperity and stability in the two kingdoms. You had um, Judah and, and their king under, their, their king at the time was King Uzziah, and Israel's king was King Jeroboam. And so there's this time where things were just going pretty well. When things are going pretty well, it's easy to become apathetic and complacent. You know, if if we're sort of insulated, we can look around and think, man, things aren't going that bad. I guess it's all right. And Amos saw how the systems that were at work then were oppressing people at the bottom. So he, he goes up. He lived in a, a little village outside of Jerusalem. He went about, uh, oh, 65 miles north to the to Israel's main place of worship and sacrifice at, at Bethel, and <clears throat> he starts preaching to the people. Now, Amos was calculated in the way that he presented his message to the people. He starts by calling out the sin of the surrounding nations. Now, this country is guilty of this. 
This people is guilty of this. He gets all the way to, he even calls out the sins of Judah. And so the home team, the home crowd of Israel, I mean, they're, amen, brother, you preach it. Just look at how bad those people are. And he's got them all whompered up by calling out the sin in their surrounding neighbors. And then he narrows, then he zeroes in on Israel. They're already cheering. They're already saying, yes, yes, you are right on the money. So the, he's got them, you know, nodding their head, yes, like this. And so when he gets in to call out their sin, there's no way that they can start turning their head because they're already going like this. And he says, he calls them out and he says, uh, you trample the poor and deny justice to the oppressed. You have contempt for the judges who are upright and honest, the people who tell the truth. Your leaders oppress the poor. Uh, you take bribes so that the poor receive no justice in the courts. See, life in this day, life was brutal for the poor, while the privileged few kind of prospered greatly. And because of the prosperity of some, the poverty of others was disguised because it just looked good on the surface. You worship false gods, and you refuse repeatedly to turn back to God and repent. You're complacent. You're at ease. You don't care about any of this. And they can't deny it. They can't deny it. But does that list that sound a little familiar? Hmm? This is 760 B.C. But you might say that Amos walked around the United States for a while, began to call us out on some sins that have worked their way into the system that are there, and, and we kind of, by not doing anything about them, become complacent in, in it. Well, Amos found the courage to speak this truth to power. He got righteously angry for what he saw in society. There was this holy discontent that bubbled up inside him, and he could no longer not do anything. He had to do something and raise his voice and call it out. He says, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Throughout the Old Testament, we, we read about characters, uh, specifically prophets, but um, David in, is included in that, Moses to some degree, and and if you read the Psalms and other prophets, you'll come across um, a lot of places where it seems like they are shaking their fist at God. Their, their righteous anger has bubbled up, and they're taking it to God. How long, O oh Lord, must we endure this? And sometimes the anger even seems to be directed at God. How long, O oh Lord, will you keep allowing this to happen? Why, am I, why are we being oppressed like this from, from those that are around us? Um, I wrote down a, a, a few of these places. Um, 
in Psalm, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. Why, Lord? Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He says to himself, God will never notice. How long, Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long? Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. How long, Lord? How long will you allow this to go on? All of these prayers like this, the you might want to write this down because it's a, just a fun word to say. It's um, all of those prayers fall into the category of uzkequo prayers. It's a Latin word. It just means how long. Uzkequo. And they're all over the Bible. All of them express a righteous anger, a, a holy discontent with the way that these people saw what was going on in their worlds. And this righteous anger, this holy discontent that was, was forming inside them motivated them to work for change, to call people to repent and turn back to God, to change their ways. We, we see this in Jesus. Now, the preferred image that most of us carry of Jesus is one that there's, you know, soft, glowing light 
just makes the picture look serene and you know the brown hair blue eyed Jesus has the little lamb around his neck and there's you know children in the picture we, we like the image of the gentle Jesus with the sheep and the kids and I think there is a gentle side to Jesus who is patient and kind and loving and gracious. But do you remember when Jesus was with his disciples and he said, who do people say I am? Do you remember the answers that came back? You're like Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets of old. Do you know about those prophets of old and Elijah and John the Baptist? They were fire breathers. They were rough around the edges. They had an edge to them. They were in your face, call you out on your sin kind of people. And this is who people said that Jesus was. There's a loving, gracious, gentle side of Jesus, yes, but there's another side where the righteous anger rises up and the holy discontent sets in. It's building all through the Gospel of Mark. He looks around at society around him, the religious system, and he becomes more and more irritated with what the religion had become. And he lamented over the ways in, in which people were treating one another and oppressing one another. I mean, in all of the Gospels we see it, but specifically in Mark, uh, if, you, if you just kind of glance through the book, chapter 2, he, he knew when, the, when the, the four friends lowered their friend down for healing, and Jesus said, I forgive you your sins. He knew, he could sense in the religious leaders who were present that they thought he was blaspheming. And he got righteously angry, and he said, you know, I'll, I'll show you. What's, what, what is harder to do, to say, I forgive your sins, or to say to this man, get up and walk? And he healed the guy out of righteous anger. Chapter 3, the very next chapter. The, they're talking about what is lawful on the Sabbath. There's a guy there who had a withered hand. And it says that, that Jesus... And you ask the question, is it, is, it, um, is it okay to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And, and they were silent. They didn't answer his question, and he looked at them in anger, and he was deeply distressed, and he went ahead and he healed the guy because he was righteously angry, not content at all with the people thinking that following the religious law was more important than doing good for this man who needed healing. Chapter 6, he gets to his hometown and, and they kind of reject him. He's not able to, to do much in his hometown because of people's lack of faith. And He says the prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And he was able to do limited things. Chapter 7, he calls the Pharisees a bunch of hypocrites. Chapter 11, Last week, we talked about it. He went in. He saw the state of the temple, all the money-changing tables and the ways that they were keeping people out and oppressing the poor. Uh, and and he, 
he goes in and he starts overturning tables and he starts driving those people out. He's righteously angry over what the system had become. Chapter 12, partway through, he calls them out. He says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God to the religious leaders who should, who ought to know those things. Jesus looked around. He saw the crowds just wandering aimlessly without a shepherd. And he saw the religious leaders uh, putting up barriers, putting up stop signs instead of the, the welcome signs. He saw them heaping more rules and regulations on the people. He, he saw all of this hurt and the pain, and he says it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be like this. And he will go, Jesus will go all the way to the cross to effect change in his society. In fact, for the world, for us. He says enough already as his hands are being nailed to the cross. Enough already. I'm doing this so that you, the ones who are rebelling against me, can experience the love and the forgiveness of God the Father. So what drives this holy discontent? What drives Jesus' righteous anger? It was in the passage that we read. In a word, it's love. It's love for his creation, for people. Love is at the heart of discontent, a holy, righteous, sacrificial, godly love. Jesus, when we get to our passage today, he had, there was a series of episodes where the religious professionals, the various groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, they all come and they take their turn asking him questions that are designed for him to implicate himself, to condemn himself so that they can deal with him. And in each case, uh, Jesus is able to answer them or turn the conversation around where they don't, they don't get anything out of Jesus that they're, that they're looking for. And so you can feel the tension in these conversations that are building, and you can, you can almost see the frustration in Jesus' face. You're just not getting it. And then along comes this scribe who asks the question, which of the commandments is the greatest? The question is a, it was a relevant question during the day. Um, in Jewish circles, they would often talk about which of the 613 commandments was the greatest. There were, there were 248 positive commands, so in other words, commands that tell you to do this, and there were 365 don't do this. There was a don't do this for every day of the year, 613 total. Some of the, the commandments were considered um, smaller and lighter, not too difficult, Others were considered uh, more important, weightier. I mean, this, this is the important stuff. You, you best be paying attention to this. And so there is this dual tendency among 
those who would debate about such things to, on the one hand, hey, the law, the 613 laws are important. We better make sure that we're following all of them, and so they would add laws, and they would just expand it out, volumes of laws, so that we make sure that we keep all these 613. But on, but on the other hand, there was this debate that was going on is, which one is most important? Which one's first? Which one's greatest? I mean, that's a conversation that we have in our society all the time. You know, hey, what's the best movie of all time? What's the best rock band of all time? You know, we rank them. Who's the best quarterback of all time? Is it Bart Starr or Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers? Um, yeah, you can laugh. It's okay. But it's, it's a conversation that's out there that we like to engage in, and most of us have really solid reasoning for whatever we would answer. So the scribe asks this legitimate, legitimate question. I think he was sincere. I think he was honest. I don't think he had any motivation to try and trap Jesus. I th- Mark tells us that he had observed the interaction Jesus had with the other professionals, and the scribe was, was, was lured into the conversation. He was intrigued by how well Jesus answered those, so I think he legitimately wanted to know, Jesus, what do you think about this? Which command is the greatest? And without hesitation, Jesus answers him. He gives him a straight-up answer. He doesn't answer him with a question. I mean, that's, hey, good job, Jesus. Normally, he kind of turns that around, (laughs) makes it a little uncomfortable for those who are asking the questions. In this case, Jesus says, let me tell you. He quotes out of Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. We call it the Shema. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He gives him the straight-up answer. N.T. Wright, he says this uh, on this passage. He says, The Jewish law begins with worship, with the love of God, because if it's true that we're made in God's image, we will find our fullest meaning, our true selves, the more we learn to love and worship the one we are designed to reflect. No half measures, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, every aspect of human life is to be poured out gladly in worship of the one true God. Whatever we do, we are to do for him. If we truly lived like that for a single day, God's kingdom would have come on earth as it is in heaven. Love God with one's whole being. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus gives the scribe more than he asks for. Jesus is really good at that. If you ask him something, oftentimes he'll give you more than you asked for. Loving God is not in isolation from other relationships. Jesus adds to his answer. He quotes from Leviticus 19, 18. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's critically important that we link this one to the first one. If people truly lived by love your neighbor as yourself, many of the world's, most of the world's problems could be transformed and changed overnight. When you obey the second one, it shows that you have really, truly embraced the first one. 
True love of God works itself out in loving our neighbors genuinely. So we get to the end of this this episode, and the scribe agrees with Jesus. That's shocking. In all of the Gospels, this is the only place where a scribe agrees with something that Jesus said. He says, well said, teacher. But he also adds some commentary. He picks up on something in Jesus' teaching that Jesus implied, but he didn't have to say. But the scribe is the one who vocalizes this for us. He says, this is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is what Jesus has been looking for. This is what Jesus has his holy discontent and righteous anger over is that people missed that point and now the scribe says it out loud. This way of life, loving God and loving people, is more important than any of the religious system that we have in place right now. If these commandments are the greatest, if this is what worshiping, loving, and serving God is all about, then all that the temple stands for and all the ritual sacrifices are really unnecessary. And Jesus says, yes, yes. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 34, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're close. You're, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Why does he say that? The guy has just spoken out loud what Jesus has been trying to get across, and Jesus says, hey, you're close. You're not far from the kingdom of God. What's left for this guy? We might wonder. Jesus is not saying, he's not meaning that this guy has to work harder and do more to cross over the borderline into the kingdom of God. Following rules won't get you into heaven. It would be impossible for any of us on our own effort or merit to perfectly measure up to God's standard. So what's left? It's repentance. It's repentance. It's turning and taking steps towards God. He had the ability to think it and articulate it, but Jesus calls him to repentance and says, hey, you got to begin to live it. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to take steps in the direction of actually doing it. See, we get a picture of God's, uh, uh, there's two phrases that we often hear, uh, characteristics of God. We hear that God is love. We also hear that God is just. And if you, if you lean too much into God is love, you get this mushy, spineless kind of understanding. Like everything's going to be okay in the end because God is love. And so if we disconnect that from the belief and the reality that God is also just, it's dangerous. But if we lean too much into God is just, then we worry about all the rules and doing just the right thing because we, we fear God's punishment for us. 
And what I would say is when you hold both of those things in tension with one another, because God is love and God is just, you can't, you can't disconnect it. The kind of love that Jesus is motivated by in his holy discontent and his righteous anger is one that, is, that holds people to a gracious accountability. If you don't turn, there will come a day where you will be judged. But right now, while there's still breath and there's still time, you can turn. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, where do we go from here? I would say first, when, when everything seems like it's falling apart, when you look around the world and you are disheartened or saddened or disillusioned, when it seems like evil is winning the day, you gotta, you gotta keep hope alive and remember the story. Evil put Jesus on the cross, but God won in the end and vindicated him and rose, he rose from the dead. Sin does not win. Evil does not triumph. It's already been defeated and so you keep your hope alive. That somehow, some way, God will turn this thing around. And eventually, one day, he will return and make all things new. Transformation can happen in your own life and in our world. And so we need to remember that. The second thing that I think that you can do is, is you can look around the world and the things that you get upset about the things that kind of wreck you, that break your heart, you can let those things wreck you. As a way of building a righteous anger, a holy discontent in your life, you can remember that what you are witnessing and seeing out in the world, the ways people are being oppressed and treated unfairly, you can let those things bother you and you can remember that it doesn't have to be like this. You can pray for God's kingdom and righteousness to come on earth as it is in heaven. See, when we love God, when we truly love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, we'll begin to care about what God cares about. And when we see that being trampled, it will wreck you. And it's okay to let that percolate in your soul. It's okay to let the righteous anger well up out of you. Because when that happens and you are motivated to do something, it's beautiful and loving when it compels you to act because it ushers in the healing grace of God in our world or in somebody else's life. But only if it compels you to act. 
only if you're motivated to step into doing something about it. So I'd want to ask you, what, what bothers you these days? What's weighing on your heart as you look out into your world? Let your love for God motivate you to love your neighbor. Enough so that you will step out on their behalf. See, because God has saved each and every one of us so that we can begin to change some corner in our world, to be agents of reconciliation and agents of transformation that go out into the world. And so we can say, like the prophet Amos, let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. And that would be a direct challenge. The people of God 